Okay. Do you want to give her a whirl, Jason? Ready to go. All right. Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast, but today it's more like the Modern Lad Podcast. I'm Phil Sachs, and you're listening to episode 36. And I'm Jason Murray, and our wives have a great interview lined up for you today. But first, Phil and I hope that you are enjoying our wives' podcast as much as they enjoy recording it. The best way that you can show your support for our wives and the Modern Lady Podcast is by subscribing and leaving them a comment, rating, or review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Michelle and Lindsay truly love and appreciate every single comment that you leave for them. This week's shout out goes to Henny76, who commented in iTunes. I started listening to this show when it debuted and loved it then. Many podcasts catch my interest at first, and then I tire of them as they become repetitive. Not this one. Michelle and Lindsay remain a joy to listen to. They are light and fun, as well as incredibly informative. The length is perfect too for my downtime. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much for your comment and review. And if you too would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on their website at www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or you can leave them a comment on Facebook or Instagram where you can find them at The Modern Lady Podcast. You know what, Phil? This is harder than it looks. I'm done. What about you? I, Time I to am... throw it back to the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yep. Right with you there. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure to have you introduce the show today in honor of Father's Day. Well, Father's Day month now at this point. Okay, Lindsay and I have wanted to have today's guest on the show for a long time, and we hope you enjoy our interview today with the Catholic traveler himself. But before we get into today's interview, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. With summer finally upon us, I have started wondering about the proper etiquette for bare feet. Now, Michelle and I are Canadian, and it's already our custom up here in the north to remove footwear in people's houses. But from what I understand, this is still not commonplace to do in the United States, and and please chime in if I'm wrong on that. So upon looking into this more, I did read about a Japanese etiquette tip regarding bare feet. This quote comes from the Huffington Post. Do not let your feet touch the outside ground before you enter the inside of your host's house. When you are taking your shoes off, carefully step straight inside without letting your bare or socked feet touch the ground. Now, upon looking into this further, I did have some trouble finding anything conclusive regarding being barefooted in somebody's house, but I am going to continue to look into this. It seems that the consensus is that you look at the feet of the homeowner when they open the door for you and you do what they're doing. Are they wearing shoes? Are they barefooted? You can follow suit. This does become a little more complicated when you're actually wearing sandals or flip-flops and you truly wonder about if removing your sandals and being barefooted in their house is okay versus being in socks. It is perfectly polite to ask your host if they prefer you to keep your shoes on. So that is something I've wondered about a lot. And I want to look into it more Mm. regarding even when you like, so we host a lot of dinner parties and I never wear socks. I'm a barefooted person pretty much all year round, even in the middle of winter. And then I'm like, does that gross people out if I'm barefooted while I'm cooking for them? So I want to look into this Mm. a bit more, Michelle. 
That is that is a great question because you're right. Like um, often with formal shoes, mm-hmm. so you're talking about dinner parties and stuff like that. The shoes are part of your outfit, yeah. and um, I actually had this conversation too because I was asking for the for my brother's wedding. I was debating whether to wear sandals or close-toed shoes, and do I wear stockings mm. or not? And so I wasn't taking my shoes off per se, but I. Um, like what do you wear with a formal shoe and I was talking it over with my mom and she was actually mentioning she's like you know um just what we're talking about she's like in some cultures and stuff you don't even walk into restaurants with sandals Mm. because it's your bare feet and I was like I didn't even think of that but you're right this whole barefoot issue um wow that's there's a lot to unpack here We're thrilled today to welcome our friend Mountain Butoric to the show. Mountain is the founder of The Catholic Traveler, a company that has been providing custom tours and pilgrimages to Europe and the Holy Land since 2004. He has personally led over 130 tours, now lives in Rome with his wife and daughters, and has traveled with some pretty amazing people over his years in the business, from Catholics to atheists priests and nuns to a real princess, professional sports figures, actors and actresses, from newborns all the way to 90-year-olds, Mountain has combined all of his passions, including the Catholic faith, travel, and helping people, into a successful and fulfilling career. So I'm going to pass the mic over to Lindsay now to conduct the interview. And without further ado, we're very happy to introduce you to our friend, Mountain Butoric, the Catholic Traveler. Thank you so much, Mountain, for joining Michelle and I on the Modern Lady podcast. As Michelle said, we have been so excited for this interview, and like many, we have felt that we have actually been traveling along with you thanks to your amazing Instagram account at The Catholic Traveler, and look forward to getting to know you better. So Mountain, can we start out with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps starting with how your parents settled on such an awesome name? (laughs) Yeah, so um, my parents, my name is Mountain, that's actually my given name. It's on my birth certificate. And I wasn't raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. My dad, mm-hmm. right out of high school, tried to go into the seminary. He was raised Catholic. Um, but this was oh. Chicago in the, I guess, early 60s. And the seminary was full. So they said, come back mm-hmm. next year. And so he did what any teenage boy who had been discerning a priestly vocation did and was turned away from the seminary. He left the church altogether. And so mm-hmm. he concentrated on his music. He was a musician. Um, he got pretty big in the Midwest. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones came to see him play. Um, but then, oh, yeah, right. Uh, but then he got laryngitis and he was the singer of his band. And so that's not a very good thing for a singer to get. And so he couldn't sing for a full year. And so he took mm-hmm. that as kind of a sign to change up his life. So he moved to Atlanta. That's where he met my mother. And my mother had, uh, she was also raised, um, oh, she wasn't raised Catholic, but she was kind of raised like a Protestant, something or other, but not really practicing. And so Mm -hmm. um, they were both involved in the music industry. My dad's still a musician. My mother had a record store. And so when I was born, they wanted something kind of a a hippie-ish. My mom says it wasn't hippie-ish, it was punk rock. Um, but a different name. And so they named me Mountain. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's how I got the name. 
Um, but now both my parents, they've converted. We all came into the church kind of together. And my mother is the DRE at the church. My dad's the music director and I lead Catholic pilgrimages. That is amazing. So as you mentioned, you're from Atlanta and you now live in Rome. And so how on earth does an American decide to move to Rome, aside from it being so beautiful, to become a tour guide? And were you married at the time? And how did your wife feel about that? Yes. So I've been leading pilgrimages for about 15 years. Um, And so I would travel back and forth from Atlanta. I would have groups from all over the country, but I would usually fly ahead of the group a couple Mm -hmm. days to Rome and get adjusted uh, used to the time zone. And then they would fly over and meet me. And about six years ago, my wife, we had two daughters at the time. Um, and I was gone a lot, sometimes, you know, two or three weeks at a time on group tours. And we were looking to move away from Atlanta just because we wanted something different. And my wife jokingly said, why don't we just move to Rome? You're always there anyway. And so we started looking into it, doing some research and found a way to make it work. And so we moved over about five and a half years ago and uh, we we sold everything, the house, the cars, the furniture, we got rid of everything and we moved over as just a fresh start. And so, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. It was just kind of a, why don't we give this a try and look how it's turned out. Wow. And so obviously when, what was the first time you went to Rome and what about it did you fall in love with? So I first came to Rome nearly 20 years ago. I had a friend who was in the seminary here at the North American College. That's where the American and um, Canadian seminarians live when they're studying in Rome. And when he was here, uh, he was a a tour guide. Like that was his apostolate. So they all have kind of a job they do. And that was his. So when people Mm. would visit Rome, he would show them around to some of the churches. And so when he was ordained and moved to Atlanta... Um, that's when we met when he was after he was ordained a deacon, and he wanted to travel back to Rome to see the diaconate ordination of some of his um, previous classmates, and mm-hmm. he invited me to come along with him. And I was like, "Sure, that sounds fun." Um, at the time, you know, I thought Rome was just a bunch of old stuff and <laughs> didn't really know much about the history. I mean, I knew there was like a Colosseum, the Pope lived here, all that, um, but that was yeah. about it. And so uh, I flew over with him, and when we landed in Rome, he knew that our hotel would not be ready yet because it was early in the morning. So uh, we jumped into a taxi and took it to um, a road that's just beside St. Peter's Basilica called Borgo Pio. And so we stepped out of the taxi. I could hear hear the bells of St. Peter's ringing as I stepped on the cobblestone for the first time. Um, Mm. You know, a bunch of priests and cassocks walked by. Nuns in their full habits Mm -hmm. were walking by. And I was like, wow, I'm in love with this place. And so uh-huh. uh, for the next week, it was all like that. I mean, a couple of days later, we went to a mass with uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, and I got to meet him. I had no idea who he was um, at the time. Oh, I just knew that everybody really thought he was a great guy and loved him. And, and then the next day, I was front row, front row when John Paul II was doing an audience. And so it just uh-huh. all these moments happened. And then at the time, I was working in the music industry, just like my parents were. Um, I worked for a record label, so Warner Brothers, a big record label. And But just being in Rome, I knew that this is where I belonged. And so when I went home, I immediately quit my job, which was, you know, it was a pretty cool job to have for a guy in his 20s. 
Um, but I quit my job yeah. and I bought a one-way ticket back to Rome and I left within just a couple of days and I'd planned nothing. I just, I knew that I wanted to be in Rome. And so I flew back over to Rome with no guidebooks or anything, just a, a backpack. And I stayed in Italy until I ran out of money, which didn't really take long because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, like three weeks or something, I was out of money. I was like, where'd all my money go? Um, but I was staying in like nice <laughs> hotels and eating nice meals. And apparently when you're in your early 20s, you're supposed to stay in hostels and eat bread. But I didn't know that at the right. time. So yeah, so um, I stayed, like I said, until I ran out of money. And then when I went back to the US, I started working IT jobs just to save enough money to travel. And during that time, I, would, I started planning trips for friends and family. I was like, oh, you've got to go here and see this. And and so one day when I was working, I was like, you know, I think I really want to concentrate on helping people experience their faith through travel. And so I went to my parish priest and I'd never put together a pilgrimage or anything. I'd never been on one, but I said, hey, I'd like to put together a pilgrimage for the church. What do you think? And he said, okay. And so, yeah, that was my, that was my first pilgrimage, but it all started from that very first time I visited 20 years ago and just fell in love with where I was. That is incredible. I actually have goosebumps from different parts of that story. <laughs> so everybody who follows you on The Catholic Traveler has seen you visiting these gorgeous locations, right? Like you're talking about. And so like mm -hmm. the Holy Land, France, Portugal, Ireland. Um, I'm sure you're asked this all the time, but I've got to get it out of the way. Do you have a favorite place to visit? So I... The ones you mentioned, I do love taking people to the Holy Land because it's such a powerful experience, and that's you know, that's where it all began. Um, so I do love that, but Italy is where my heart is. So I love bringing people to Rome. Um, it really does feel like home. I mean, I've only lived here five and a half years, but it feels like my home. When I go back to Atlanta, that doesn't feel like home. It just feels like I'm visiting friends and family. Wow. Um, but my other place is Assisi here in Italy. And uh, I just, I love Assisi. So many people travel to Assisi as a day trip because it's only a couple hours outside of Rome. Um, but I usually take, when I take my groups, we stay for usually three nights because it's so peaceful and it's, mm -hmm. it's a small town located in the hills of Umbria. The food is amazing. And that's, mm. that's my favorite place, I think, to take people outside of Rome. Um, but the other ones too, Ireland, Portugal, France. You know, it's all, it's all amazing. Oh, man. So it's just like what you're saying with Assisi, you seem to know kind of all the cool places to visit that are a little bit off the beaten track. And I've noticed that this is actually a travel trend right now. People wanting to be more of an explorer versus like a tourist. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. what your thoughts are on visiting like the very popular tourist spots versus kind of spending the time to go to the not so popular attractions that still have a cultural or historical significance. Like if, if you get to do one trip, should people do all the top very popular spots or really try to cultivate a trip that's, you know, off the beaten track? Well, that's it's kind of a difficult question because the popular spots are difficult for a reason. Um, like when you come to Rome, mm. people are going to want to see the Colosseum and they're going to want to see the Sistine Chapel. So I think that it's good to have a mix and to see the top sites, mm. but also get off the beaten path. I mean, there's over 900 churches in Rome. Mm. And, you know, a lot of them are, they have 
something very special in them or a saint lived there or somebody's buried there or something like that. And so I think that it's, you know, like you said, the people, they want to see something that not a lot of people go to, but you do need to see mm-hmm. the, 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 the highlights of where you're visiting as well. But I think it can be done, you know, quickly, like the Colosseum, for example, I don't think that people need to go inside the Colosseum. It's crowded and stuff. Oh, that's and I interesting. Think, I think that, and, and people that have done it, they usually agree like, oh, I could have just saw the outside and got a picture. So I think that it's, there's ways to do things yeah. without having it take your entire day and your entire budget. Um, but I also think like yeah. when we talk about Assisi or places like that, that a lot of people do as day trips. I think if you want it to be, feel more like off the beaten path, you spend the night. Um, because so many people mm-hmm. do day trip to all these towns that while in the daytime, it might be overwhelmed with tourists, there's, they're just there to, you know, maybe an Assisi again, for example, to see the tomb of St. Francis, mm-hmm. uh, get a couple of pictures, they leave. And so then at night, it's like a completely different city. And there's a lot of towns in Italy that are like that. Even Florence, people do Florence as a day trip, which is ridiculous. I mean, that's a beautiful town. But if you spend the night, then, you know, you have a different experience than the people that are just there during the day. Oh, that's a great idea. A great tip. So I have seen many a large family take your tours. Um, and I know that both my family and Michelle, my co-host, her family, we've never even considered really doing this, the big <laughs> trip to Europe because we're just terrified of it all, the work, the expense, the stress. So do you have some tips for like larger families that are traveling or considering doing the big trip to Europe? Uh, I think it's important to organize. So I do get a lot of people, um, sometimes on pilgrimages, but a lot of my, I call them day pilgrimages or kind of like tours of the churches of Rome. Um, I get a lot of them mm-hmm. like homeschool families. Um, so that mm-hmm. helps because they can travel in the off season. So you can save some money that way. Yeah. Um, I do have some too that are, they're in traditional schools or Catholic schools. And if they tell the school what they want to do, like I want to take my kid to, Italy for a week. A lot of times that'll be an excused absence. I mean, I don't know how it works in, in Canada, but sometimes some of the schools in America will, will accept that. Um, but then that helps with the budgeting is to travel during the off season. Um, mm. You know, with so many Airbnbs now, it's possible to rent an apartment and stay in those. And that saves a lot of money as well because hotels usually, sometimes they'll have like a triple room they consider a family room, but they won't allow more people. Yeah other than that. Um, but I think it's, it's very important to organize. So, you know, you know, what you're going to do, what you're going to avoid, um, for things like museums, you know, if you plan ahead, you can get an entry time. So you're not wasting time in lines because, you know, adults don't like waking, Hmm. don't like waiting in lines, but especially kids, they're not going to want to wait, you know, three hours in a line to see a museum. Um, but most of these museums, you can book ahead and you can skip the line. Because is that the reality of it? Like, should people really expect a long wait to see things like the Sistine Chapel or that kind of, like, is that really the reality of having, you know, that's, those lineups? That's, I can't even Yeah, imagine. that's the, it's the reality if you don't plan. So in the case okay. of the Sistine Chapel, um, well, for one thing, a lot of people don't even realize that it's part of the Vatican museums. So I have some people that come mm. to Rome. They're like, we want to see the Sistine Chapel. We don't care about going to the museum. It's like, well, you have to mm. see the museum because it's at the end of the museums. Um, so, right. yeah, if you just show up at the Vatican Museums any day of the week, you'll wait in a line that's a couple hours long. Um, but if you go online the day before, you can say, I want to go at 2 p.m. And 
then you just show up at 2 p.m. and you get in. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, your time is valuable when you travel. So a lot of people are like, right. they want to save money, so they might skip a reservation at a, at a museum or something because it costs four extra euro to make a reservation. Like, oh, we're going to save that money. It's like, well, yeah, but now you're going to wait two hours. So how much money are you really saving wow. when you're wasting all your time in line? Um, so that's one thing I would with, have had no idea families. about that. Yeah. yeah. So that's one thing with families traveling, to, to organize and be prepared. But the other thing that's important is to be flexible um, because obviously yeah. you have kids, you know, that, things come up, you might have a kid who's six, you have to make a doctor's visit, things like that. And so it's good to stay flexible and just know that, you know, if you can't do this on one day, maybe you'll do it the next day. That's awesome. Um, so you must end up having to do, like your knowledge is, must be outstanding on all these churches and the relics, and you must be learning so much all, because it kind of becomes a ministry in a way as you're explaining what oh, why the Catholic Church keeps relics, right, mm -hmm. for people. So you... I don't know, like you must just learn something new every day yourself and then just really are able to explain it to all these people on your tours, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely a, a ministry that I'm very happy to be a part of. Um, I see reconversions happen where people come back into the faith oh. after certain things that happen in Rome. Um, I've had people that want to go to confession after being away for years. Oh my gosh. And yeah, yeah. And that's usually like a spouse of a practicing Catholic, um, somebody that left the church for whatever reason. And so I'm always learning from the people around me that, that I'm taking on tour because you know, each time I take someone somewhere, it's really me taking, it's me going myself again for the first time, but through their oh. eyes. So when they see the Pope for the first time, like today I took a group of 20 people to the papal audience and mm -hmm. it was the first time for all, but I think one of them. And so just, to see the look in their eyes as they see the Holy Father for the first time. And, you know, I see him all the time, but seeing it through their eyes, it, it gives me goosebumps again. And it makes me feel oh. all excited to be there. I love that. Oh, that's incredible. Oh, my goodness. Um, so you mentioned the Holy Land, and mm -hmm. I just, I can't even imagine seeing those things, with, you know, with my own eyes. And, um, but I was actually shocked, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I was shocked by the incredible Insta stories you were posting of how beautiful it actually is. Like there's all this lush plantation and flowers and just, it's so much more beautiful than I ever thought it was. And I, and I hate even saying mm -hmm. that because I truly didn't know. So I'm so thankful for your Instagram stories that have shown <laughs> the Holy land. Um, so, but I also have always wondered um, if you have ever felt like that your safety's in jeopardy there, or if it truly is a really safe place to go, because I've always really wondered about that. So uh, back to the first part about it being very lush. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. A funny story about that is the very first time I went, um, my wife's family lives in Miami. So we're in Miami at the beach and I posted a picture on Instagram and I said, I'm at the beach today, but tomorrow I'm going to be in the desert. And mm -hmm. some of my people that were helping me put the trip together that live in the Holy Land, they all started making like joking comments about it. Like you have no idea what you're talking about. And when I got off the airplane and we went straight to Tiberius, the Sea of Galilee, uh, mm -hmm. it was very lush and I had no idea. And here I was taking a group of 40 people and I had no idea that it was so lush. But yeah, up in the Galilee area, there's palm trees, there's flowers. You can see why Jesus chose to you know, do most of his ministry in that area. And it's just yeah. beautiful. Of course, like when you get closer to Jerusalem, that's where you see the wilderness and the desert. Mm. But yeah, it is just a beautiful country. 
And I had no idea the first time I went, so you shouldn't be embarrassed for that. Um, As far as safety, yeah, as far as safety, um, I've always felt very safe. Uh, I feel safer there than I do in most U.S. cities. And the fact is that there's, there's really no violent crime in the Holy Land. So you hear about, you know, in America, there's shootings in cities every day. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. Um, But in the Holy Land, there's really none of that. Sometimes you'll hear about a soldier that gets stabbed or shot, which of course is terrible, but it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not like a store is getting robbed or somebody was just shot on the street. That doesn't really happen. And usually when something does happen in the Holy Land, like a few years ago, there was an American, I think that was stabbed in the old city. And that was right before a pilgrimage I was about to lead. And I had all these people call me and a couple of people wanted to cancel. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, where do you live? And they're like, Chicago. And I was like, okay, well, how many people got shot in Chicago last <laughs> night? And they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because it is so rare. Yeah. Now, on the other side, of course, there are people that would love to just wipe Israel off the map. Um, but that doesn't right. happen either, obviously. And the media back home usually exaggerates things. So even when you hear about right, okay. missiles fired from the Gaza Strip, uh, they don't explain yeah. that the Gaza Strip is hours south of Jerusalem. And okay. usually the missiles they fire, they're not very advanced. So it's not like they're targeting a certain spot. They're just kind of like lobbing missiles over the wall. Again, terrible thing. I mean, it does okay. sometimes hit neighborhoods in the area. But it's not like they're mm-hmm. shooting nukes towards Jerusalem or anything. Um, but we just don't always hear that in the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has truly been the the videos you post from there on your Insta stories have really blown my mind about the Holy Land. And um, I know I've told you before that my mom has started following you, and that's she messages me all the time. And they're going, <laughs> I just have you seen his videos? They're incredible. Like that. I mean, great. it's it's really opened my eyes up. And if I really hope that our listeners follow you and and just really can see all that because you really take everybody so close on your videos. I feel like I'm there and it's just truly incredible. So thank you for that. So to finish up um, with, um, I'm, I'm dying to know, and I know again, you probably get asked this all the time, but just if you had to pick like your top five must-see spots, we'll, we'll just try to localize it to Rome, maybe to make it a little okay. easier, but mm-hmm. the top five must-see spots in, in Rome for our listeners. Okay. Uh, one isn't really a spot, but it's a thing. I think that when people come to Rome, they should try to experience a papal liturgy. So mm-hmm. the audience is great, of course. I mean, I think that people should go to the audience. Um, but if, if you have a chance, and I have on my website the papal calendar, so people can even kind of plan their trips around a papal mass. But being able to go to a papal mass in St. Peter's Basilica is just one of the most amazing things. The music, the fact that you know, the Holy Father is there, and there's always cardinals with them and bishops and just hundreds wow. of priests processing in. So I think that that's just an amazing experience. So it's one of my must-sees. When I first moved over, I went to every single papal event for a full year. So every audience, every mass, everything he did that was public, and even sometimes when I could sneak in, things that were not public, just because I didn't know how long I was going to be here, and I didn't want to take advantage, I mean, not uh, I didn't want to take for granted that I was here. And so every morning I was up 6 a.m. out the door going to these papal events anytime I could. So um, I have a big stack of tickets from all of those. So that's one thing. Um, 
That's awesome. Another thing I would recommend, if, if people could be here during Lent, there is mm. um, this ancient tradition of the Lenten station churches. So this was kind of established by Gregory the Great, so a long time ago. But he would go to a different church every day during Lent to celebrate Mass with the community. And that still goes on today, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later. It's, it, the Pope doesn't go to all the churches anymore. He just goes to the very first one. But all of these churches, they have their station day is what it's called. And it's like their big celebration during Lent. So they bring out all their relics. And it's just an amazing experience. Um, the North American College, they have a mass at all of these churches at 7 a.m. each morning. And so it's a chance to go to mass in English with all the seminarians and hundreds of priests that are here in Rome. Um, but the church itself has their mass later in the evening where they bring out the relics. And I just, I, I, it's a lovely tradition. And I think that mm. that's a lot of fun to experience. Um, one of my favorite wow. churches here is Sant'Andrea della Frate. And that's halfway between the Spanish Steps and the Trevi Fountain. So it's like right mm -hmm. on the beaten path. So, you know, I don't know, a million people walk by it every day, um, but not everyone mm -hmm. pops in there. But that is known as the Lords of Rome um, because there was a Marian apparition that happened in that church. No um, so a lot of people don't know that. And so I love that church because it's always empty and there's this little shrine built over the spot of the apparition. Um, a lot of people have heard of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Yeah. Um, that's where he celebrated his first mass. Because <gasps> um, the apparition actually ties into, I'll just, do I have time for a quick little story? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So there is this non-believing Jewish man, and he was traveling to Rome uh, as part of his bachelor party. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like a month-long bachelor party of Europe or something, you know, like most guys do. <laughs> yeah. And right. And um, the yeah. story goes that he was on the train to Rome and he saw a priest wearing the miraculous medal. And this was about 150 mm -hmm. years ago. And mm -hmm. he didn't like Catholics. And so he kind of started making fun of the priest. And the priest said, well, if you think that our medals are so ridiculous, why don't you just wear one while you're in Rome? Um, say a prayer to Mary every day, see what happens. He's like, ah, that's stupid, but I'll do it anyway. And so mm -hmm. while he was in Rome, he wore the miraculous medal. He said this prayer. And then at the end of his time in Rome, he went back to the church to give it, uh, he went to the church to give it to the priest who was staying there. And the priest was in the sacristy. There was nobody in the church. And so um, when the priest came out of the sacristy, this non-believing Jewish guy who didn't like Catholics at all was on the floor in tears. And the priest ran over and he said, what's wrong? Are you okay? And he said, I saw Mary. And he said, what? You saw Mary? He said, yeah, she appeared right here before me. She didn't say anything, but she gave me all this, uh, all this knowledge. And he said, I need to be baptized right away. And the priest said, well, we can't baptize you. You're not even Christian. And he said, well, I know everything. Ask me anything I need to know and get me baptized. And so they started asking him all these questions. And he had all the answers to all the doctrine of the faith. You know, he knew everything. Wow. And so eventually, not right away, of course, but eventually they baptized him. He ended up going into seminary, became a priest, and he moved to Jerusalem. Um, his mission in life was to convert the Jews. And mm -hmm. so that's how he spent the rest of his days. So his name is oh Alfonso, and uh, my French is terrible, but Rathisbone or something is how you say his last name. Um, okay. And so, uh, yeah, he's now buried 
where St. John the Baptist was born in, in, uh, just outside of Jerusalem in Ein Karim. Um, but so that's why Maximilian Kolbe wanted to celebrate his first mass over the spot where that apparition happened. But it's a beautiful wow. story and just an amazing fact that there was a Marian apparition approved by the church. Mm-hmm. And so I love to take people there for that, for that church. Wow. Um, so that's number three. Oh. Yeah. So uh, my other yeah, favorite yep. church to take people to is Santa Croce in Jerusalem. Um, mm-hmm. That is where St. Helen or St. Helena, Constantine's mother, lived uh, when she was in Rome. Um, it's a church built over where her palace was. But, you know, she is the one that traveled to Jerusalem and brought the relics of the Passion mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Rome. Um, so in her home, she kept the true cross, the crown of thorns, oh uh, part of the title that hung above the cross or the titulus. Uh-huh. Um, so in this church, they have all of that. They have the cross beam of the good thief. They have four big pieces of wood from Christ's cross. They have two of the thorns from the crown of thorns. They have one of the nails. Um, they have that title, the INRI that hung above the cross. And the crazy thing about this church is it, it's right down the street from the cathedral, St. John Lateran. Um, but uh-huh. I take people to that church sometimes twice a day. It's almost uh-huh. always completely empty. Wow. So not a lot of people know that this stuff is there. I'm freaking out. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm going to book my trip. Like the minute we end, <laughs> I'm just going to find the money. Like this is incredible. I just can't even wrap my head around that, that you can be right. in this, in the presence of these relics. I just can't even inches, inches away. Like <sighs> it's only glass separates you from the true cross. And now the one time a year that that church is packed is on Good Friday. That's when we do the veneration of the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this church, they actually take out the true cross, and that's the one you get to kiss. Oh, my goodness. And so that's when the church is packed, and even the piazza out front is oh packed. My but for the most part, that church is empty, and you could just spend <gasps> hours in front of the relics of the Passion and not be disturbed by anybody. And this is why it's so important that people book yeah, book a pilgrimage through you, like, because you know, these things, people don't know this, like this, there's such a benefit to having sharing your knowledge. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. And oh, well, another thing, like when people are coming to Rome, I, I usually ask them, like, if they have a favorite saint, too, because we have so many parts of saints mm-hmm. here in Rome, that I mean, that sounds crazy right. to the non Catholic listeners, but um, <laughs> you know, we have a finger here, a leg here, there's a head over there. Uh, so you know, people have devotions to certain saints and they can be like, oh, is there a part of this person? I'm like, oh yeah, that's in that church. Anyway, so my favorite thing though, yeah. my absolute favorite thing to do in Rome, and it should be no surprise to anyone who follows mm-hmm. me on social media, is the Scala Santa. So yes, the Holy yes. Stairs. <laughs> and so these are the steps that were brought, again, from St. Helena, from Jerusalem to Rome, uh, that led mm-hmm. up to Pontius Pilate's um, Praetorium in, in Jerusalem. So these are the stairs that Jesus climbed the day he was condemned to death. So he went up the stairs, they sent him down, they did the scourging, then he went back up the stairs again all bloodied, and that's when they sent him down to be crucified. So he went up and down a few times. And so there's 28 marble steps, and so she brought them here to Rome, and people always ask, like, how do we know these are the actual steps? Um, so there's a few reasons. Uh, one, the first couple steps are still in Jerusalem. And so you can see mm-hmm. part of those there, and it's the same type of marble. Um, mm-hmm. But real, the, the real reason we know that these are the steps is because she was the emperor's mom. So if the emperor's mom wanted to bring back 28 marble steps, it's really not that big of a deal. And when you're going up, you can mm-hmm. actually see the stairs are cut 
um, horizontally. So they cut the steps individually and brought them over. Um, but they, they put them back together here in Rome and they led to the Pope's private chapel. And so for hundreds of years, over a thousand years, only the Pope had access to those steps or him and people that he would bring up. And what they would do is they would go up the stairs on their knees. And at the top was his private chapel, which had all the relics. It was called the holiest of holies. And he would celebrate mass up there. Mm. But then about 400 years ago, they decided to open up the stairs to the public. And so what they did was they covered the stairs in this beautiful walnut wood, and they would allow the public, the faithful, to go up on their knees. And so that's what people have been in, been doing for 400 years. And then about a year and a half ago, they started restoring the frescoes directly above the stairs. And so they had to put scaffolding on the steps. So the stairs were closed for a full year. And then right before they reopened, they decided to replace the baseboards on the steps. And so as they took the baseboards off, they found all of these pictures and notes and prayers people had written for the last you know, couple hundred years shoved into the wood. And so uh -huh. they took off the, the top part, the walnut wood as well, and they cleaned the stairs and they took all the prayers out. I don't know what they did with them, but they took them all out. And then they realized that the marble was in such good shape that they wanted to leave mm -hmm. that marble exposed for the public to venerate the actual marble oh that gosh. Christ walked up. And so for oh the gosh. past 60 or 70 days, um, the faithful have been able to go up the actual marble on their knees. And then that, that all ends on June 30th. So on June mm -hmm. 30th, uh, that'll be the last time you could do that. Then they're going to put the wood back on and, they say for the last time they won't open it up again, but they've already extended the date by a couple of weeks. Right. And there's been such a huge draw for people going to the Holy Stairs. Like sometimes you have to wait an hour just to go up. Mm. Um, that, you know, although I tell people like this is a once in a lifetime thing, they'll probably never do it again. I think that there might be a time where they decide to take the wood off again just for a short period of time. So that's my absolute favorite thing. And that's where I've seen the most happen to people like the most reconversions or people get stronger in their faith because, you know, we're not used to that type of penance and going up 28 steps on our knees, which right. doesn't really sound like that big of a deal. But when you're on like step 10 and you still have 18 to go and the wood or the marble is digging into your shins and it's really hot and you're sweaty, you know, you, you really start thinking about what Christ went through. Mm -hmm. And it does stuff to people. And the church actually used to have an exorcist on site. That's how powerful mm. of an experience people would oh have. Gosh. But he died a few years ago and they haven't replaced him yet. But oh it's just gosh. it's just such an amazing thing to do. And I go up every time with my people. I don't know how many hundreds of times I've gone up. And every time it's a different experience. So, yeah, those are my top five must-sees and must-dos in Rome. I love that. So we are done with the questions. You have, I can't wait to listen to this, even though I just did the interview because you've shared so many amazing things. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So as is our custom on the podcast, we always allow our guests to go first. And so Mountain, what have you been loving this week? Well, I said this when we were talking off air a few minutes ago, and I'm going to say that this is what I love this week, is not having food poisoning. <laughs> and yes. I recommend it. 
I know that's something yeah. silly, but uh, especially when we're traveling, taking our health for granted. Um, mm. So I did something really stupid. I have a group with me right now as we're recording this. And I had a group with me a week ago in the Holy Land. And so that was a week of Holy Land food. And then I have you know a week now of Italian food. And so my group, we started in Venice. And so I arrived the day before my group. And so I thought, this was like nine o'clock at night, I was hungry. And I thought, you know, I don't think I want to have Italian food tonight. I'm going to be having it for a week. I'll find something like a comfort food. And so I found this place that served nachos in Venice. And that was a very bad decision. Um, And so I would recommend, so something I'm loving this week is, and like the whole time going in, I wasn't listening to the voice in my head. So what I'm loving this week is, not having food poisoning and listening to that mm-hmm. inner voice because I knew that I shouldn't go in there. I knew it didn't taste right and I did oh, it gosh. anyway and I regretted it. Oh. Um, so yeah, that's probably not your usual what I'm loving nope. this week, but I'm going to say no. that your loving this week is my health and not absolutely not having food poisoning. So Kind of silly. I think that's a really good thing. No, I think for people who are thinking about traveling, like you don't even consider that that could ruin your entire trip, right? Like for for me, like we've never been anywhere. And so that that's something that would probably happen to me on our first trip. So just yet not taking your health for granted and making sure you eat at reputable places when you're somewhere that you're not used to. Okay. And Lindsay, what have you been loving this week then? Well, I'm loving my Amazon Fire Stick. <laughs> I don't know if everybody's <laughs> familiar with that, but we signed up for Amazon Prime a while ago. And then um, I was only able to like watch the TV shows and movies on the laptop, which is hard when all six of us are crowding around the little laptop. So I saw mm. for $39 Canadian, um, you can buy the Fire Stick. I had no idea what that involved, but I ordered it. And you just plug it into the side of your smart TV. And suddenly, technology, all of the shows that were on the laptop, I can watch on our TV. But what I'm really loving about it is that Amazon has a good selection of like classic TV shows and movies that I find that Netflix just doesn't have. So I'm loving like the Donna Reed show and they have the Dick Van Dyke show and just a lot Mm. of those and a lot of, um, um, uh, who's my favorite actor? Cary Grant. A lot of his movies are on there and Jimmy Stewart. So there's just a really good variety. You know, we're very picky about what we let our children watch and Jason and I are huge fans of old movies and TV shows. And so a lot of them are on Amazon Prime and therefore the Fire Stick is a great thing for only $39 to buy and to plug into your TV and have access to all of that. So Michelle, what have you been loving this week? Okay, so I have actually tried something new in my coffee. Um oh. We have been putting cardamom in our coffee. I know. It's kind of crazy. Have you ever tried this? No. When I went through my Swedish phase, every cardamom was in in everything. So no, I've never tried it though. Yeah. It's Arabic coffee. So when you're in the Holy Land, um, all the coffee has cardamom in it. Oh, no way. No, really. I had Mm -hmm. no idea. So yeah, we have tons of cardamom um, at home because our our priest uh, who is from India, whenever he goes home, he brings home these awesome spices for us. Um, So we have like cloves and cardamom and everything. And so uh, I found a recipe online for cold brew made Mm -hmm. by steeping the coffee with cardamom for about 18 hours in the fridge. Mm -hmm. 
And so we actually haven't tried it yet with their uh, simple syrup that goes with it, which they also say to mix the cardamom with vanilla and let it steep as well. Um, but yeah, so far we have just brewed the cardamom and had it hot. And I really do like the, the spice that it adds to the nuttiness of coffee. So yeah, there you go. You guys, uh, I'm obviously behind the game. You guys are far <laughs> more up on your coffee game than I am. <laughs> That's awesome. But, but there you go, yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. And if you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or leave us a comment on Facebook or Instagram at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. And where can people find you online, Mountain? Sure. So my website is thecatholictraveler.com. And that's where you can find my pilgrimages, my day tours, lots of travel tips for Rome and all over Europe, um, papal calendar, things like that. And then on social media, I'm the Catholic Traveler on Instagram and on Facebook. And we highly recommend that everybody immediately go to their social media and follow him because it is truly my favorite Instagram account. Yes. And thank you so much for joining us this week, Mountain. It was such a pleasure having you on the show. It was wonderful to be here. And thank you all for listening. Have a great week and we will see you next time.